This is Your Working Life, a podcast with tools, inspiration, and resources to help you enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Sean Askinosi to the show. Sean is going to talk about how he left a successful career as a criminal defense attorney to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and he never looked back. Sean, welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you, Caroline. I'm thrilled too. Now, I have to tell you, you and I were chatting before the show started today. And, you know, it's such a treat for me to get books from the authors whom I showcase on the show. But your package came with a bar of your beautiful chocolate. And I'll tell you, it was delicious. Uh, my husband and I literally wrestled to the ground for it. And we, we each got some. So it was uh, fantastic. Have you always had a passion for chocolate? Because clearly, this is your passion now. Well, thank you for saying that. And the uh, short answer is no. Okay. Um, my wife has always enjoyed chocolate, but I know, you know, really, like a lot of your listeners, I'm sure I had a passion for my career that I was doing, yeah. you know, for 20 years. And then since I didn't have any hobbies, I thought I better get some. And uh, then it just, one of them um, turned up to be chocolate. And you know what I find interesting? I mean, the world of criminal defense is intense, right? Stressful. So I understand that you might not have even had time for hobbies, but was there a moment where you had that epiphany or realization to say, you know, I'm looking for something different because as a fellow career reinventor, I remember that moment very seriously. Yes, I did. And, um, My specialty was uh, the defense of murder cases, and um, I didn't lose a jury trial in 20 years. And um, so, yeah, it was intense. It was, uh, and yes, I worked a lot, so I didn't have a lot of time for hobbies. But the thing is, I loved it so much that it was my hobby. I, I loved it. You know, I loved everything about it. And but then there, there was this moment. Um, as you describe, um, that was a pivotal moment for me. And of course, the further it is in my rear view more mirror, the sharper it seems to be in my mind as to just how much of a moment it really was. And it was without going into too great, great a detail. It was, uh, at the conclusion or near the conclusion of a murder trial, particularly, um, high profile, stressful case that, um, was between my client and I, uh, and it was where she, this woman was charged with first degree murder. I truly believed in her case. And she was just this little hundred pound woman that I'd been advocating for and defending for two years. And, um, we were in the ante room outside the courtroom right before closing arguments. And anyway, the, the, the judge basically was turning the case around and letting her go and that, which, which is unheard of. And, first degree murder uh, territory. And, um, but at that moment she began to comfort me and, um, I was tearful and emotional about it and that's not the way it's supposed to go. So the moment for me was a, was a, a, a role reversal. So the protector became the protected. And, uh, I knew then that there was a shift just body, mind, and soul. And it took a while to sort of manifest itself in an actual career change. It took five years, but uh, that was the moment. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's quite a, a personal look at that experience for you. One of the things that struck me 
reading your book, Sean, is uh, the concept of this being a book for anyone who's successful but unsettled. And that resonated with me in such a way. I come in contact with so many people. You know, we define success different ways. So it wasn't as if you weren't doing well in your legal career. You were at the top of your game, but clearly that was a pivotal moment. So how did you make that transition? What was that like for you? Mm-hmm. That transition was uh, quite turbulent and uh, because I couldn't, I didn't have the luxury of just saying goodbye to my law practice while I was searching for the next thing. And I'm sure like a lot of your listeners, I needed to keep working. And when you're, once you've made the decision or once you've um, said in your mind, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, you raise a really good point. And that is this, if you are, if you have established a, a degree of success in your career, then you've relied upon your own skills and tools to get you where you are. And so what often happens is those successful people Um, when deciding, okay, this is it, I'm going to do something else, think, well, all of the skills and tools that I've used to bring me here are also going to point me in the right direction of where I go next. And that can um, not be, that can be a very unsettling and frustrating experience because it doesn't always work that way. And that can, and and we we can, and I certainly had a real um, sense of uh, darkness and um, uncomfortability and frustration and desperation during those five years. And that's what the book's about. The book is about this, this sort of path that was very circuitous uh, in trying to find the next thing while I was still practicing law and having to do my job. Right. Right. And that's one of the things that I found so, um, what's the word, resonant in your book and and frankly, so vulnerable. And I'm so grateful for your candor and your vulnerability in the book, because you talk about sorrow and how it helped you find meaning in life and actually helped you find joy. So give us a glimpse into that, because your book is called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business and Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. So the the happy ending is clear, but the transition, I'm sure, for many of our listeners is is something that they're very curious about. The, The concept of working with our sorrow, I know is not new to you. And I mean, you, you, uh, describe your, your own heartbreak and, and struggle, uh, in your own transition. And I know a lot of your listeners understand what I mean, but I love this notion of one of my favorite poet philosophers, Khalil Gibran, who says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And that is, I think at the crux of, um, the place in our own lives where we can really reflect and find if we work hard, a place of clarity that is not found in books, friends, mentors, podcasts, any of it. It's, it's, it's within ourselves. And I think it's an extremely challenging um, type of work because it can be uncomfortable But especially when we turn and face this, in some case, our greatest heartbreak of all in our lives, and it's what we maybe have avoided during those years of success. And my point is that if we can, if we can establish a conversation 
with ourselves along the lines of where does it hurt? What is my heartbreak? What is my sorrow? Um, and then once we've identified that, which for people who've had heartbreak, it isn't hard. To, I mean, we know what it is. The question then is, well, what do you do with it? And, and my suggestion, uh, and this is not a prescription, it's just a suggestion and, and my own story, which I think will resonate with some people who've experienced heartbreak. And that is, can you take that heartbreak and find a place to serve someone out of that own place in your heart that was and is broken? And um, people say, well, wait, you mean, do I go find a place to serve and then that will be my future career? No. Could be, could be, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that if you find a place or a person or a group or people that you can roll up your sleeves and serve, and I don't mean write a check or be on the board of directors, those are important, but I mean shoulder to shoulder, mutuality, kinship, compassion, demonstration of kindness. If you can do that without expecting anything, and it, and it happens to be in this in the same space as your own heartbreak, then that's where the clarity happens. And it's a paradox. It's a mystery, but that's what happens. Beautifully put. We'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedoubthiggins.com. Sean, one of the things that really resonated with me in the book, and I'm referring to chapter five, for those that have the book in their hand as they're listening to the show, you talk about reverse scale. And, you know, we live in a culture globally where bigger uh, is better seems to be the, the, um, the thought. I disagree, as I believe you do. So tell us a little bit about reverse scale and how you really came to terms with how much is enough. The, the, the North American culture, really Western culture, um, drives all of us to a default setting of scale is good. Growth is good, and not just good, but it's the key to our survival as business people and entrepreneurs. And what I'm suggesting suggesting is can we can we push back on that notion just a little bit and kind of say, well, why, why is that? Well, the chambers of commerce, you know, they want us to scale because it means more jobs in the community. Investors want us to scale because it means more, you know, ROI for them and our friends and family want us to scale because they think it means we'll be rich. And, and, and uh, sometimes we're tempted to scale because we think that we're going to actually be able to find the end of the rainbow uh, with scale where we can, you know, finally breathe and look at things and take time and, and uh, that that's where the answer is. And unfortunately it isn't. And, and what we end up doing is when we're scaling is constantly finding uh, someone to do the thing that's now below them in order to move themselves up. And that can be um, a place 
where we lose touch with the thing that drew us to our business, our entrepreneurship to begin with. And before we know it, we're so distanced from that thing that we were lost. And so my, my suggestion is, can we, can we use this practice that I call reverse scale, where we're asking the question, what, is it possible that this idea has value even if it only impacts one person? Or what if it only impacts me? Could it still be valuable? Of course it can. And so what this is another way of saying that this idea of not growing just for the sake of growth or even for some other reasons, but if we can, if we can hold close to ourselves and tether to this reason that drew us there to begin with, then it's, an, it's a way for us to practice presence, right? It's a way for us to say, and this is what, what I try to do. I try to say, you know, this is it. This is all I've got right here, right now, this chocolate bar, this cocoa farmer, or this student that we're working with, that's it. And so when you couple that, that sort of resistance to our culture with the question that you said, which is, how, which in the, was the, is the title of another chapter in the book, which is how much is enough? How much is enough? How much, how much is enough Instagram likes? How much is enough Facebook likes? How many downloads on your podcast is enough? If we can, and we know this is a moving target. This is not um, set in stone, but we can we can examine these questions periodically in our career and our lives. And if we just ask the question, then it gives us the chance, in my opinion, to experience the mystery of the divine in ways that we will never ever expect, and that we might have not have the opportunity if all we were doing was growing. I don't know if that makes sense the way I explain it. But yeah. It does. It absolutely does. I love, I, I'm just, uh, you illustrated that, right? I can see this beautiful picture in my mind. So thank you for that. I, I want to dive in to the chocolate because your company has been named one of the 25 best small companies in America. So well done you. That was no easy feat. Certainly, as a lawyer, there's an entrepreneurial yeah. spirit there, right? Because you're you're looking for clients, you're building your book of business. Um, what what drew you to this business? Well, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, the there was this pivotal mom- moment that you asked me about, and after that pivotal moment, I said to myself, "Well, I can't do this anymore." Uh, and it, as I mentioned, it's a, it was a body, mind and spirit feeling like literally in my body, I can't do this anymore. And, um, so in, in my search, I read everything. I listened to everything. I talked to everybody. I couldn't find, I, I was becoming desperate. It's when I started taking Lexapro. Um, I, 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 I had a prayer that I said every day, which was dear God, please give me something else to do. And, and, you know, sometimes people laugh when I say that because it does sound kind of funny, but it was true. And I said it sometimes 20 times a day. And um, so what I ended up doing is I ended up volunteering in the palliative care department of our local uh, hospital. And palliative care is essentially hospice in the hospital. Uh, people are dying. And um, I, I went there on Fridays when I was in town just as a volunteer visitor with patients all over the hospital who were in some stage of dying. And so um, at the end of my visit, I would ask them, Hey, um, would you like me to say a prayer for you? And 
pretty much 99.9% of dying people will take a prayer. And uh, I would ask them what they wanted me to pray for. I listened and I prayed their exact words. I reflected their words back to them, no matter what they were. You know, would, uh, would you pray that I'm healed? Would you pray that I die today? Would you pray for my family? Would you pray that we can reconcile? All those things. I, I, I prayed their prayer. And what I found is that when I would ask them if I could touch their hand or their shoulder. Sometimes I even kneeled down next to their hospital bed. I found that for a moment, I actually thought about somebody besides me and I wasn't so wrapped up in what am I going to do and what's my next career and why can't I find it? And, and I actually, it, it was this weird thing where I thought about someone else, uh, exclusively. I mean, like completely. And then there were times when I would leave the hospital not every time, but a lot of times. And it was, uh, walking to my car and I thought my feet weren't on the ground. It was like, I was just walking on air or something. People may say, well, gee whiz, Sean, that's kind of morbid. Those people were dying. Sometimes I was actually with them when they died. Um, no, why? It's because of what we said earlier. It's our friend Khalil Gibran. Our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And so what was happening is I was this, this walking on air thing is called joy. It was unmistakable, clear joy. And the reason that it happened is because my greatest sorrow was when my dad died of lung cancer when I was 14. You know, he was my hero and I helped take care of him. And he was a former Marine and just somebody I thought would live forever. And uh, it was, it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. And so for me to be able to serve those people in the hospital, um, it unlocked something in me and it gave me clarity and one day I was just driving down the road um, and I thought, hey, I think I'll make chocolate from scratch. And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even know it came from a bean. I didn't know where it was. <laughs> that's how it happened. Right. Yeah, where does it come happened. from? <laughs> that is really neat. And thank you for sharing this story about palliative care and, and hospice. That It really is such a, a gift, right, that, that you were able to experience that. And certainly the people uh, with whom you were experiencing that. So it's not just about chocolate, right? It is delicious. I can tell you from personal experience, but you have a business philosophy that is so giving and, and has global uh, reach. Tell us a little bit about that. You mentioned just briefly earlier, you know, the, the coffee bean growers, the students that you work with. I mean, there's so many entities uh, that you impact in such a positive way. And I'd love for you to give our global listeners a glimpse of that. Sure. Well, this, the back, the setting is we only have 17 full-time employees, including me. And so we're small and again, this idea of reverse scale and how much is enough. Um, but to give you a sense, we profit share with farmers. Um, next month I'll go to the Amazon. It'll be my 45th origin trip to meet with cocoa farmers. Some of these farmers I've been buying from cocoa beans from them for 15 years. Um, and when we profit share with them, we open our books to them. So our financials are translated into their language. When I was in Tanzania and will be again this summer, our financials are in Swahili. Um, we just surpassed 1.3 million school lunches provided for malnourished children in Tanzania and the Philippines, and we measure their height and weight in school attendance. It's all sustainable with no donations. We have a program called Chocolate University that we've had since we started, where we engage uh, elementary school near our factory, middle school, and high school. The high school program is a business immersion program that happens in the summer, and this is our 10th year of this. They learn, um, they, they spend some time on a university campus, and they learn a little about Tanzania. They meet me at the airport and we go to Tanzania. It's a transformative experience for these kids because 
they're treated as if they're members of the family when they meet these cocoa farmers uh, that have been, you know, with me for a decade. And um, so these are just a few of the things that we do. Uh, just two weeks ago, we opened a preschool in the village in Tanzania where we buy beans for 300 children. They have no preschool in a hundred mile radius. So this is a very big deal in partnership with our farmers there. We have an empowered girls program there that we've had since 2011. And then we recently, three years ago, started something called Enlightened Boys. So there would be a corollary program to the girls. And in time, we've had over 6,000 young people go through that after school program there in Tanzania, uh, girls and boys. Um, and I'm saying all that. And I started with the fact that we have 17 people. And I, my message is, Anybody can do this. You don't have to be a Unilever or some huge company to to do these things. You can be a really small, just you know, a small place, just you, and and have an impact like this. And I still have time for you know um, fun things, and I watch a lot of trash TV, and you know, and it's fine. <laughs> Well, you know what I love? I can hear the energy and the smile in your voice. And it's it's clear to me, it's palpable that this not only gives great joy to other people, this wonderful connection around the world, but it empowers you with great joy. I can just hear it. This is your calling. Mm -hmm. It is. W would you agree that you, you had that moment and it didn't happen instantaneously? This was something that you developed over time because you gave yourself permission to get quiet and really self-reflect and consider what mattered. Right. I did do that. And this is a, and thanks for mentioning, because this isn't instantaneous. And it's, I, I also, and, and you talk about this a lot, but we, we need to, in order to get to some of these places, we have to build the the environment. And for me, it happened to be um, going on a retreat. And I, I've been going to this Trappist monastery near my house in the wilderness of the Mark Twain National Forest for 20 years. And in the last six years, I've become a family brother there. So I live with the monks when I'm there. I follow their prayer schedule. And, and then I bring that into my life. So I have a very specific routine in the mornings that I follow and have for years and, you know, stretching and meditation and prayer and and, and music. And, and, um, these are all very, very important to me. And they help me when, when the, when there are sad times and we've talked about heartbreak a few times in, in, in this, um, show. And I would just say, you know what? The heartbreak doesn't end. It doesn't end. And we shouldn't ask it to, I don't think we should ask the universe to end our heartbreak because grief and sorrow are the other side of love. They're sisters, and we we need it, and and but but it can be hard at times. And my 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 practice that I just described helps me. It doesn't doesn't remove it, but it helps me. Sean, I am so grateful for you. I am inspired by your work. I learned a lot from you today, and I'm just so thankful that you shared your time with our our global audience. I want to tell them the name of your book. I'm holding it in my hand. It's so beautiful, called Meaningful Work: A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. And of course, your company is called Askinosi Chocolate. And the book is available on Amazon and all major book retailers. I wish you continued joy and success. This is such an exciting journey for you. And I'm grateful to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for the invitation. And thank you for the questions. I'm so grateful. And safe travels. I know you've got a lot coming up. Thank you. 
And if you like our show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like to hear on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.